From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply. Welcome into the Ots and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And before we dive into this Monday episode of the podcast, I want to remind Duck fans out there that we currently have a promotion where you can get 60% off an annual subscription, 60% off your first year. Uh, that's $3.58 a month. Uh, you're, you're billed $42.96 up front, $3.58 a month for an entire year of, of membership to DuckTerritory.com. You get the entire stretch run of the 2020 recruiting class. You get spring football. You get the men and women's basketball coverage as they try and get to the Final Four. You get all of the 2020 football season, and you get almost the entirety of the recruiting cycle for 2021, which right now Oregon is sixth in the country in that recruiting cycle for football. So jump in on that before that promotion goes away. Now, Eric, we've kind of transitioned from Mondays being game recaps of football to now game recaps of the both the men and the women's basketball teams. And it was a big weekend for both teams. Uh, the, the women played their round robin civil war games, uh, on Friday they played in Eugene and on Sunday afternoon they played up in Corvallis. From the men's side they played, they played USC on Thursday and then they played a Sunday matinee at Matinat Arena, uh, against the UCLA Bruins and, uh, both, both weekends were really critical for both teams. Let's start with the women, uh, and let's more so just start with the news that happened with Kobe Bryant, the death of, of Kobe, his daughter, and seven other people in a plane, in a helicopter crash in, in, in California Sunday morning was quite frankly the story of the day. It's going to be the story for the next few weeks probably, uh, as more information of this just horrific, horrible event comes out. And you and I were talking before we hopped on the, rec- on to record this that it kind of just, you know, an awesome environment in Corvallis kind of became subdued just because of the news. Yeah, it was, it's kind of weird. Um, the news broke about 90 minutes before tip off. Um, and, and if you followed this at all yesterday, you, you're probably familiar with a lot of these details. Um, but Sabrina Nescu is very close with Kobe Bryant and she didn't come out for warm-ups. The team warmed up for about 30 minutes before the game. She didn't come out for that. She didn't really show up until team introductions and the national anthem right before tip-off. Um, and you saw her face if you watched the telecast. And if you were there, she was crying. She was bawling. And a lot of the players were, too, um, about an hour before tip-off. And UNESCO wasn't a part of this. Um, but, but everybody that was out warming up, both Oregon and Oregon State, met at half court. And it was kind of an odd thing because you just – I, I don't usually get to the games that early or paying that close attention. You know, you don't necessarily know what they're doing, but the team, the, both the teams kind of got together and held hands and started praying. And I was like, this is definitely unusual, but you didn't know if it was necessarily a reflection of the Kobe news or not, but they finished the prayer with Kobe um, is how they ended it. And, and it was kind of, uh, that kind of set the tone for the rest of the day. And I'm not saying that the basketball was bad or that it wasn't significant, but it did feel sort of, overshadowed a little bit by that news. Um, obviously a huge, huge figure in basketball, a huge figure in women's basketball in particular because of his daughter, Gigi, who 
tragically also passes 13 years old, passes on the, the helicopter flight. She was, um, both, both Gigi and Kobe were big Oregon women's basketball supporters. Went to a handful, of, or I don't know if a handful, but went to two or three games over the last couple of years. Um, it sounds like from what Coach Graves said in post game, um, Kobe had been connecting with Sabrina a couple times a week. That'd be kind of come a, it sounds like become kind of a mentor for her. Uh, so this was, this was a really weird atmosphere. I, I don't know if I've ever covered a game with this kind of strange cloud covering it and, and kind of hanging over it. it. It didn't feel, I mean, on one hand, Oregon goes out and they win 66 to 57. They beat Oregon State twice. This weekend, first win in Corvallis since 2010, something that Kelly Graves had never done or Sabrina Ionescu or Ruthie Heber, anyone on this team had ever done. And it should be this moment of celebration, but the celebration itself was even kind of subdued because of what had taken place. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was very strange. I mean, it, it, and it wasn't just players that were crying. There were people, you know, throughout the crowd that were crying. There were people around press row that were crying. I mean, it, it was a very strange, I shouldn't say strange, but it was a very somber, kind of surreal place to be. And I think I saw this tweeted by a couple people, but I feel like Kobe Bryant's passing will be one of those things where you remember where you were when you heard the news. And I, that'll certainly be true for me. You know, I was sitting there with, with Jared, one of our interns, and, and he nudges me and goes, TMZ saying Kobe died. And I go, there's, there's no way. Because we should say there were rumors early in the week that Kobe was going to be at Matthew Knight Arena on Friday for, for the Civil War. I think Kelly Graves had said they were going to have some celebrities up and it had never been substantiated. But there were, you know, knowing what Kobe is for women's basketball and the relationship with Sabrina, there was kind of a, I think a lot of people suggesting that he would be the, that, that special sort of dignitary that, that made it up to Eugene and, and obviously it didn't come together and it was a couple of other people, but, um, this is, it was just, it, it all felt kind of strange and kind of, you know, kind of again, it, it, what happened on the court felt a little bit secondary to something that was a little greater and, um, we can talk about the significance in the conference, but, and what this does for Oregon look going forward because this is a huge weekend. I mean, they just won two games against, um, a top 10 team in Oregon State. They basically solidify that Oregon State won't be a factor in the Pac-12 uh, championship run this year. But um, not a lot of that was what people were talking about during or, or after the game just because of all of what was going on um, in the basketball community. On the men's side, it was also evident, you know, throughout the arena there just wasn't as much buzz. I don't think nearly as much as, as it was up in Corvallis, um, but it was evident going into that game that there was, you know, the basketball community and Eugene was also hurting. And Oregon themselves have a connection. The men's side have a connection with Kobe Bryant. He came to the team uh, during their Elite Eight run during, I think, the 15-16 season and watched them play in the Sweet 16. Uh, and then in the following season, uh, the 16-17 the year, when they made the Final Four, Kobe actually showed up and – spoke to the team ahead of their game against North Carolina. I mean, he went through a film session with them um, and, you know, gave them some shoes and spent some time with the team. And Altman, after the game, brought up how gracious Kobe Bryant and how genuine he was and, you know, with his time and how he's, he could be pulled in a whole bunch of different directions. And yet he made it a point to come speak to his team and all his guys were just beyond belief of, they were in the room with Kobe Bryant talking basketball and Peyton Pritchard mentioned how it's just a sad day overall. And the, the basketball community is, is hurting. And I, I think the crazy thing is, is 
you go out and you touch on social media or you listen to the news and you see how many people in just the world of sports, not just basketball, were touched in some capacity by Kobe Bryant and the impact that he had, whether it was directly or not, um, with them or, or with their team. It, it was, like you said, it's truly going to be one of those moments where I don't think you're going to forget where you were when you found out the news that he and his daughter and seven other people, you know, tragically died in a helicopter plane crash. It's just awful news. Uh, we're going to have to see, you know, how both teams move on from it. Um, there's real no easy transition from that. So I'm just going to go into it. Uh, let's, let's talk about these past two games for Oregon, Oregon state. Um, you brought it up that the wins essentially assure that Oregon State no longer will be in play for the conference championship. I mean, maybe some craziness happens to get them back into it, but this is a significant weekend for Oregon to gain some separation. Oh, 100%. And you now look at the standings, and there's a three-way tie for first with UCLA, Stanford, and Oregon all at 7-1. and Oregon has given Stanford its lone loss of the season, and you have to go all the way down to sixth place to find Oregon State, which despite being ranked seventh in the country at the time we're recording this, and they're going to release rankings later, and I'm sure Oregon State will be a little bit lower. Um, but they're four and four right now, and they have four losses, and they're not even to the midway point of Pac-12 um, play. They'll get there this week. But that right there basically all but seals that Oregon State won't be factoring into this. There's too many teams ahead of them. Uh, things would have to go absolutely haywire. And, and honestly, having now watched I've seen all the contenders that I just mentioned besides UCLA play Oregon. Oregon's the best team, I think, by a pretty significant margin, in my opinion, of the teams I've seen play. Um, they were far better than Stanford. Oregon State challenged them in both games, but I think it was pretty clear, you know, when it kind of got down to the nitty-gritty, which is what we saw on Sunday, where Oregon trails at halftime, but they really turn in an incredible defensive effort. Um, it was clear to me that Oregon was just out, I think outclasses Oregon State on its best day. I, I Arizona State's the one team to beat Oregon so far. The Sun Devils are five and three, so they're two off Oregon right now. I don't consider them a legitimate Pac-12 championship contender, really. I think it's going to come down to those top three teams. Um, Oregon does go to Stanford next month, and they do go to UCLA next month, and there's no re- return trip for the Bruins. So the Bruins do have a bit of a favorable schedule here because they only play Oregon once, and it's in Los Angeles. So, um, that could be a, a significant game, but we should also mention that UCLA's one loss was to USC, which had previously had no wins and now has a couple, couple of wins. They've, they've kind of gotten a bit of a hot streak here, but um, it's not like UCLA has been barn burners either, although they are 18-1 this season. They haven't really played any of these other um, premier teams. They haven't played Stanford yet. They obviously haven't played Oregon, Oregon State yet. I think that's going to be significant uh, when, when we see what the Bruins can do against some of these other top contenders in the conference. But for Oregon... Um, they are now in very, very good shape. They control their own destiny, which is kind of where they've been all year. But, you know, I think you look at it, they're 7-1, 17-2 overall, in very, very good shape right now. But it doesn't get easy. It doesn't get any easier. We've been saying this now, and this is going to be the trend, because they go on the road now for eight of their next ten games, which feels almost implausible <laughs> this part, this far into the season, that that would be the stretch that sits before them. But it does, and it doesn't get easier they go to Utah and Colorado this week. I think those are very winnable games, given that Oregon won those games by a lot at home. But then they go to UConn. The Arizona schools come home, uh, come to Eugene February 7th and February 9th. 
And then, like I said, it's on the road against UCLA on the 14th, and then on the road against Stanford on the 24th with games against USC and Cal, who are lesser opponents mixed in between. So um, big games still left on the schedule, but if you're an Oregon fan, you're feeling really, really good about what this weekend meant um, in the Pac-12 standings, also in postseason standings. I mean, if you're, if you're honest here, Oregon just picked up two wins against yeah, a top-ten top team in, in Oregon State, and that can't be overlooked. I was just going to say, I have to think this was, it's not the final nail in the coffin, but I have to think this was a huge feather in the cap now for Oregon, a trump card, if you will, that they will get the one seed out west because they just, yeah. I mean, they won by double digits two times against Oregon State. They've dominated Stanford by, what, 30 points? Um right. Maybe they have to go in and, and beat UCLA one more time, or maybe maybe it's beating uh, Stanford one more time. But I have to think, as long as they don't falter more than two more times the rest of the year, this team's probably going to be the one seed out west, right? Or at least the two, or at least the two seed from the Pac-12 who plays in the Portland region. Yeah, I, I feel pretty good right now saying that 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 they should be the one seed out west where things stand currently. Again, the schedule really picks up here. Um, they're going to go to UConn, which is crazy. They're going to go to UCLA and, and, and Stanford, and again, those are three of the top ten teams at the you know at the point of recording, and those are all going to be in the next month. So you know, you, you, Oregon's been battle tested so far. They just played three games with top ten teams in the last eleven days. So it's <laughs> this this whole thing is nothing new to them. But yeah, it's not going to get any easier anytime soon. And again, I mean it. it this is a very challenging schedule. Uh, uh, you know, they, they do finish with games at home against Washington, Washington State. Those are very winnable. But then they go to Las Vegas and they're going to play in the Pac-12 tournament where they're going to see at least w- probably two of these teams in UCLA, Stanford, and Oregon State again. Probably going to see Arizona, Arizona State in there as well. I mean, they could have three, te- three games, maybe even four games against teams that are going to be big, big obstacles in terms of, uh, NCAA teams, teams that are going to challenge them. So, uh, it does not get any easier, but I think if you're an Oregon fan, you feel really good about both the Pac-12 standings and now where you're at for the NCAA tournament. And I just want to talk really quickly about the defensive effort on Sunday because um, we spent a lot of time talking about Kobe. We've talked about uh, what this does, big picture for Oregon. But, you know, that second half against Oregon State, Curly Graves said after the game, that might have been the best second half or the best half of basketball he's seen his team ever play defensively. Um, at any stop, not just Oregon, but also Gonzaga, and then his time before that at, at Leicester Colleges. But you look at it, Oregon State scores 20 points in the second half. They have eight points in the third quarter, 12 in the fourth. Um, there was a time, I think it was probably three or four minutes into the fourth quarter, where Oregon State had scored like 15, you know, about 12 or 14 points for the entire second half and had done so on like 22% shooting. They hit a couple shots at the end of the half, but... Um, Oregon State goes to half of the three-point lead, and, you, and you're kind of feeling like this game's going to come down to the wire, but it never really became that because Oregon just defended at such a high level, and it was in the paint, slowing down Taylor Jones, who'd been an absolute uh, problem on, on Friday. I think she scored 22 points in that game. She only had four points in the second half. Um, nobody was able to step up. Uh, Michaela Pivik, who had, I think, 15 at halftime, only has five in the second half. She also got into foul trouble, but... Um, it, it, it was a really, really impressive second half defensively, and I think it was a team and group effort. Um, you know, Oregon, we should mention, is down a couple bodies in the front court. Lydia Giomi is, is kind of an emergency-only option. Kelly Graves said after Friday's game, uh, Lucy Cochran's not available. Morgan Yeager's not really available. We know that Sedona Prince and Yara Sabali aren't available. And so 
once again, a team that seemed like they had so much depth. It's really down to seven or eight players at this at this current point of the season, but I think they got really good contributions from from just about everybody that plays, and they've kind of figured out their rotation. And I think you have to be really excited with what with what you're seeing here. Um, they, they've got their core three of Sabali, Ionescu, and Hebert, which are as good as there is in the country. And then they're kind of figuring things out with the with the rotation between Moore, Bowley, Chavez, and Jazz Shelley. Um, it's kind of your supplementary role players, and you know Chavez was once again really effective offensively with uh, three three baskets, two of them being key three pointers. She had eight points, and Shelley also hit a three. Moore had seven points, and I thought it was a pretty pretty effective, pretty steady out there for them. So a good team win. I think if you go watch the highlights down the stretch there in that second half. Big shots by both Chavez and Shelley to kind of keep Oregon State at arm's length. So um, a good team win, and I think a one you can build off. And I'm going to have some stuff written up on the site this week. But Oregon, I think really defensively, they've made some big strides. 57 points against Oregon State. No team in Pac-12 play this year has scored more than 72, and that was in the loss to Arizona State. I'm curious. Obviously, you need depth. And Giomi not being able to play, Lucy Cocker not being able to play, really puts Oregon in a tough spot because they really only have three post players now and Ruthie Hebert, Aaron Bully, and Satu Sabali. Um, but at the same time, I, I posed this question a couple weeks ago to you and that it felt like Oregon was trying to play 10 or 11 players and last year they were so good because they played just seven to eight. While you don't want players to get hurt, this kind of forces everyone into a position, at least for the moment, where they know their roles and they know they're going to play and all that stuff. Does this maybe help the team, at least from a, a continuity standpoint of, hey, like there's only eight players that, that are going to play, and everyone knows their minutes, everyone knows their roles to a full extent. This is, can this be a, a positive just in terms of the continuity on the court? Yeah, I think in the short term it can definitely be a positive, and, and we have really started to see, I think, roles sort of um, kind of figure themselves out over the last couple of weeks. Um, Winterborn is is kind of the clear eighth player. She played six minutes um, against Oregon State. I don't think she played on in Friday's game, and I might be wrong on that. She might have gotten in at the end, but um, she's kind of become—I don't want to say an afterthought, but she's not a, a, a clear part of the rotation. It's really a seven-player rotation with you know the starting five. And then uh, Chavez and Shelley coming off the bench, and they kind of just play the hot hand. I think Chavez actually played about 10 more minutes than Mignon Moore on Friday. She played two less on Sunday, but we should mention that she fouled out in that game and I think had three first-half fouls. So she was kind of in foul trouble the whole game. I would imagine she would have gotten um, probably a, a more significant opportunity with, with minutes had she not been in foul trouble. So I think absolutely, I think you are starting to see roles come together. Um, with this team, and it's pretty clear again that there's that big three with with Sabrina Satsu and and Ruthie Hebert, and that's the undoubted big three. They've been kind of the the leading scorers of the team. I think every game this season, and especially in conference play, they've really taken it to another level. But um, they've gotten good contributions off the bench, and and it seems like if Aaron Bully and Minyan Mar Minyan Moore aren't effective, the, the the pair off the bench have been, or vice versa. And I think we've continued to see that. Now, I would say. Long term, I would be a little bit concerned because, you know, Sabrina Nescu played 40 minutes in both games this week. We ran through the schedule of what they're doing and, and the challenges of, of going on the road for basically the next month, um, of playing, you know, three of the top 10 teams in the country in that stretch. 
they're going to be tested, and it's, they're going to probably be some of these players are, are not going to leave the floor. And you don't want to see a repeat of what happened in last year's Pac-12 conference tournament, where they really just I think they just you know and you go back and watch the games against Stanford in the conference championship game that they lost. Uh, they just folded under basically exhaustion. I mean, they just didn't have anything left in the tank. And so that would be the one thing I think you have to kind of guard against. I think at this point they're not close to that, that quite to that level yet where they're that tired. But you go through this gauntlet that they're continuing to go through. And I think right now you're kind of at the midway point or, you know, maybe the first third of that gauntlet. Um, they've got a bunch of tough games left. And I think they do have to find ways to get rest for UNESCO and Sabali, who dig in didn't didn't step off the court on Friday or on Sunday. And I think Sabley might have played 39 minutes against Oregon State on Friday. But um, certainly those two are, are, are going to be challenged with the minute that, you know, that they're being asked to play right now. And that would be my only concern because I think you're right. I think you bring up good points about we are starting to see the rotation to come together. I think they're playing, honestly, I feel like they were definitely playing their best basketball over the last three or four um, games, basically back to that, that Stanford game. I think they've been playing at a really high level. Now it's just a matter of, of, of hopefully staying healthy and making sure there's enough rest. All right, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel, streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. Are you still listening? Good. Take a deep breath. You needed a break. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount+. Plus. So, yes, you can literally stream a stream. Paramount+, Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. Welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Perrin. Eric Scopel is with me, as always, talking Oregon Duck men's and women's basketball. Just broke down the Civil War. Now let's shift gears a little bit towards the men's side, and this was a weekend in which it was also an opportunity to get some separation. They played USC on Thursday, an 8 p.m. tip-off that, quite honestly, felt a little late and didn't really the, – the magnitude of that game was not presented, I thought, um, in a clear manner from just the whole scope of things because it was first place USC – versus, I guess, technically second place Oregon. First place was on the line. Uh, that game, Oregon was a nine-and-a-half-point favorite. They went in, looked like they were going to cruise to a, an easy victory and then kind of fell apart late, you know, midway through the second half, had to find their way uh, just to tie it, to send it to overtime, and then they got another look at, to win it in overtime and didn't, and then eventually won in overtime, double overtime, excuse me, 79-70, a game in which Crystal Duarte and Peyton Pritchard were basically everything for Oregon. Uh, Pritchard had 24 points. Duarte had uh, one point off from tying his career high. He had 30 points. He had 11 rebounds, so a double-double. And then he set a Matthew Knight Arena record for eight steals in a game. It was the most steals by an Oregon Duck since 1994 when Kenya Wilkins did it. 
very impressive performance from Duarte in that one. Uh, a game that Oregon needed. A game, you know, USC is a good team. I think they were a little bit better than, than most people were expecting. Um, they have some of the very good post players, and Oregon was able to go toe to toe with them. And then on Sunday, a matinee game that really got lost in the shuffle, um, obviously because of Kobe Bryant's death. Uh, and then the Civil War was being played an hour earlier up north. A lot of eyes were on that game. And Oregon, I don't think people really re- recognized how big of a blowout this was for, for the men against the Bruins. 96-75, a game in which at one point in the first half, like 10, 11 minutes in, the Bruins were averaging uh, a turnover per minute. It, it was it was unbelievable with with how poor they were in the game with, with the basketball. They finished with 22 total turnovers. Oregon was able to to turn that into 34 points. They scored 42 points in the break or in the paint. They scored 26 points on fast break opportunities. Uh, Oregon had seven second chance points. Uh, they had 20 points off the bench. They shot, which is really impressive. Uh, 57% from the floor, 47% from three. They missed just three of their 24 free throws. They assisted, I mean, this is mind-boggling numbers offensively. They assisted 14 times on 32 shots. Uh, and they won this basketball game 96 to 75. It's one of the largest margins of victory over the UCLA Bruins in program history. It's not the highest, but it's, it's up there. Probably two or three, I think, if I remember right. Uh, Duarte was, was simply amazing again for the second straight game. He had 24 points on eight of four shooting. He made four of his seven three pointers. A couple of them were deep or right before the shot clock expired. He had six rebounds. He had six deals. He had five assists and two blocks. And we're recording this Monday morning and I would be utterly shocked if Monday afternoon we learned that Duarte is not the Pac-12 player of the week. Um, 14 steals in two games. Uh, Eric brought up the point of this might be the first time in, in, in program history that someone's had five steals in three of the last four games. I mean, his defense is on another level now. I mean, where did this I – mean, I don't want to say where did this come from uh, because you look at what he's done in conference play basically since they started, and he had one game where he scored in, in, without double figures and, and had been – Pretty clearly kind of the, the second running mate for, for Peyton Pritchard. He's clearly kind of their second offensive guy. He's been that for most of the season, but I don't think we'd seen quite what we saw here. And from a Steele's perspective, um, you take out that Washington State game, which we just mentioned where he had five. I mean, he hadn't had more than two all season since the game, season opener against Fresno State when he had three. So to see him go for eight and six, um, had, I mean, again, I, I, I've not been covering the team as close as you, Matt. Had, had he been going for a lot of steals and missing him? Had he just not been as aggressive defensively? Because to go out and put up those kind of numbers it was really staggering. And I was, again, we were talking about before the show of trying to figure out, like, who, what candidates would there be to have had, you know, three games out of four where you have five steals or more, like what Duarte just had? I mean, that's really impressive uh, statistically. I mean, where, where, where did this come from? And then offensively, it seems like he's playing – at, at his best level, too. I know some of those field goals come off of um, layups and, and transition and dunks because he is forcing those steals and they lead right to easy baskets. But he was also, like you said, 7 for 13 shooting the three-point ball and then uh, 
13 for 17 from the foul line this weekend. He had a really, really good weekend. Will Richardson said that after the UCLA game that for the first half of the year or so, he was figuring things out defensively, where to be, how to attack, and whatnot. And he said now Duarte knows when to shoot the gaps. He has better – he's more comfortable knowing – his spot in the back half of that press kind of, you know, covering the deep passes. That's where a lot of them have come from. Um, and he knows when to take chances now. And we're starting to, Richardson said, we're starting to see the ramifications of a comfortable Duarte in the defense. Data Altman said that he's always been a very athletic player, a guy that's got a ton of length and it's just gaining the confidence and the familiarity with that. And knowing when to take your chances and when not to. And this weekend it was, you know, on full display of, I mean, I guess UCLA, like he was everywhere. Like they, they literally could not get the ball up the court, uh, and past the half court line without almost turning it over or turning it over. And I mean, these, these were, these were turnovers where Duarte would, would deflect it and someone else would get a steal or this was Duarte simply taking it away or Oregon's pressure from, not only Duarte, but from everybody, where it was so overwhelming and unyielding that the Bruins just kind of wilted and they'd, they'd panic and just throw the ball and it would go, it would go to nobody. It, it, it'd go out of bounds to nobody. Um, you know, that, that's where a ton of these turnovers came from. And it was, it was shocking, honestly. I mean, after the game was over, uh, myself and a couple other people in the media room were discussing is this the worst UCLA team we've seen in a long time because they literally could not initiate their offense and you have to give some of that to Oregon you know credit to Oregon for forcing that into it but once Tiger Campbell their point guard he played like six minutes uh don't really know why some people said he maybe gotten hurt I never saw it so I couldn't say it um once he left the court though in the first half they just could not do anything. And it was, it was, honestly, it was sad to see a program like UCLA that's so stoic and so, you know, highly respected be just so bad. And you wonder, how did this happen? And Dane Altman said afterwards that, goes, look, that's a good team. Like they, and he, he talked about how, you know, he went down the list of guys and they have seven players that are ranked coming out of high school as top 100 recruits and their best player is Chris Smith, who was a four-star recruit that was in the top 150. And they've got multiple top 50 guys on this team. And it was very impressive to watch, uh, to see Oregon's defense crank up. And look, this is what we've been looking to, and waiting to see is we know Oregon's offense is really good. Their, their efficiency-wise, they're like seventh in the country offensively. And defensively, they were in the 70s. And we were looking to see if this team could kind of turn that corner defensively and become that juggernaut that they were the last couple of seasons. And while I'm not ready to say that they're there, they're starting to trend that direction. You know, you look at the standings on the women's side and Oregon's at the top. You look at the standings now on the men's side and Oregon's at the top, albeit by half a game. They're six and two. Colorado and USC are both five and two. Obviously, the Buffaloes have a tiebreaker over Oregon. Oregon has a tiebreaker over USC. So it's really a pretty close race right now between those three. And I should mention Stanford's also four and two. They just have played two less games, and Oregon's going to face them this week. Um, what, what do you kind of make of the Pac-12 right now? Because I think on the women's side, you've got 
pretty clearly the, the top three teams that are contenders. On the men's side, does it really feel like there's those are the four teams? Or I mean, Arizona, we should say, lost pretty shockingly on Saturday. They blew a 20-point yeah. first half lead against Arizona State. They lost by one. They're now 3-3. Three and three. Does it feel like those four teams I ran through that have two losses are, are the real contenders? And kind of where, where, where would you guess I say, I guess, a handicap where Oregon is at with it? Because from, I won't say an outsider's perspective, but from somebody like myself who's kind of following the team but not watching every other team in the conference, it feels like Oregon has been one of the more consistent teams, although they have had some tough games. Yeah, I, I think – well, the first part is beginning of the year, we heard a lot about how Washington was going to contend for the conference championship. And uh, there were even media members out there picking them to win it all. Um, and I, I certainly think I never I never bought into that. Now, I also didn't think that uh, the Huskies would be last in the conference. And you could point to the fact that maybe it's quad A greens being ineligible has hurt the Huskies and their chances. But their offense just isn't very good. And with Quade Green or without him this year, they've really struggled. Arizona is another team where they were picked to be a contender. Uh, some people even thought they'd win it all this year in the conference. And yet their best win this season away from McHale is against a 9-9 and Wake Forest team. They're not good at all away from home. We've seen them succumb to Oregon late, succumb to Oregon State on the road. They got... Beat, they were up 22 at Arizona State this past weekend. They lost that game. Uh, this, this Arizona team is just for whatever reason, they're not good on the road. They can't win away from McHale. And that kind of leaves just a couple teams in the standings where it's Oregon on top right now at six and two. Colorado is five and two. They do have a win over Oregon. So I think you have to take that into consideration. Now, that being said, Colorado just got blasted. Two weeks ago at Arizona, um, USC is five and two as well. Uh, Stanford is also four and two. I, th- I think Stanford isn't the favorite. That they're going to have a lot of help that needs to go their way for them to get a chance because they've played the easiest schedule. They have yet to face Oregon, Colorado, or either of the Arizona schools. Uh, they have to play Oregon twice. I believe they have to play the Arizona schools twice. Not sure about Colorado, but they're they're gonna they're gonna we're really going to see in the next couple of weeks, starting this weekend with a game against Oregon at home, just how good Stanford is. If if they're a contender or if they're a pretender, uh, I think USC has a legit chance to be a, a favorite and, and a contender for the conference championship. I mean, they had a chance to beat Oregon. They probably should have. They still have home and homes left with Colorado and the Arizona schools that don't have to play Oregon uh, the rest of the season. So as long as they win, win at home and can maybe – Find a way to to win one time in, in Colorado or, or at Tempe or, or at Arizona, they're going to be in the mix. And you know, it, fourteen and four is probably going to be enough to win the conference. You know, fifteen and three probably gets you secured outright. Uh, and, and they're going to have a chance to, to be in that path. Now, Colorado, um, I think these Colorado and Oregon are going to be the two schools. Um, Oregon, they they need to beat. Oregon out of Oregon, that's going to be huge because then that would give them uh, double wins over Oregon. They would be equal in the conference standings. They also need to go to USC, and they need to win that game as well. Um, if they lose both of those games, it's probably going to be really hard for them to win the conference championship. And so that gets you to Oregon where, look, 
we thought they were the favorites. We said they were. They've played like it in the first, what, four weeks of the season in Pac-12 play. If they emerge out of the Bay Area with a sweep and are 8-2 and two going into the back half of conference play, they are going to be the overwhelming favorites because five of their last seven games are at home. And the only two games on the road are at ASU and at Arizona. And if, if they go five and two over those, that seven stretch, I'm going to have a hard time seeing anybody else catch Oregon to win a conference championship. It seems like every year under Dana Alvin, there's a point in usually January or February where they kind of put it all together. You start seeing, you know, a run where they just don't lose for a long part of the season. Does it feel like Oregon sort of reached that point, or are we kind of overlooking the fact that they needed two overtimes to beat USC, they needed an overtime to beat Washington, they lost to Washington State, and they also needed um, overtime to come back and beat Arizona? I mean, the UCLA and Arizona State games at home, those are against two of, I don't know, middling to worst teams in the in the Pac-12, and those are pretty lopsided wins. Are you feeling like there's a lot of momentum right now? I know they have won, obviously, three out of four games, and... Uh, they're six and two in conference, but they've had to fight a lot for a lot of these wins. You know, three of them have come in overtime, and like I said, they have a tough loss against Washington State. Do you feel like they've kind of reached that level, or, or do they have another gear they can get to? Yeah, I think there's another level. Like they're still, I in my mind, still a little bit of ways away from playing at their best. Um, Pritchard brought up their on-ball defense is very good right now, but their off-ball needs to get better. And he said it starts with him. Uh, he also mentioned that Will and him had a, had a conversation after the Washington State game about how those two guys can really set the tone defensively for everybody else because they're at that top of the press. And he said if, if, if they get into it and they can play at their best basketball, then the def- defensively, then the defense becomes even better and even, even more scary, uh, to go up against. So I, I think offensively, they're starting to go, go into a groove. Now look, you, you've got, Two guys, it's very evident, with Peyton Pritchard and Chris Duarte, uh, they are your go-to players. You know, in conference play, P- Pritchard's uh, second, I believe, in, in the conference at 21.8 points per game. Uh, Remy Martin is first with, like, 23. But Duarte is just behind him at, at fifth in the conference at 17 points per game in conference games. And it's gotten to the point where those two guys are scoring at such a high clip now that maybe you don't need a third guy to show up and and be a double-digit scorer. You just need two or three guys to give you six to eight points uh, because Pritchard and Duarte are, are, are playing at another level right now. Um, but I will say it would help if a third guy could emerge and, and be that that player – for Oregon, um, where they could, they can get some points out of them. Uh, Will Richardson did have, uh, double figures scoring. I think it was 16 points, uh, against UCLA, which was really good to see, uh, because he'd really kind of cooled off after he scored 21 against, uh, Arizona about three weeks ago. He had four against ASU, four against Washington State, one against Washington. Didn't score against Southern California. So seeing him score 16 points was really good. And then another thing that really you don't notice it because it's it's a small number, but 
Anthony Mathis hit two three-pointers against UCLA, and this is a guy that, look, he really needed to see the ball go in the hoop, especially on threes. He finished the game with eight points, uh, and he hadn't made a three-pointer since ten days earlier at Washington State when he went one of three um, and scored just four points uh, in that game. So seeing, you know, for him seeing the ball go through the hoop and, and scoring the basket on some threes is, was pretty critical for him as well. So I, I think there's more to get out of from this Oregon team. They're still, I think, a, a ways away from a finished product. Uh, but we were talking about this at the game is that if they're winning these games and, and you're thinking, yo, they're still not very good and I'm not quite sure they're an elite team and yet, They're pulling out all these overtime wins. They're pulling out these road wins. They've got five quad one wins. What are they going to be like if they can get at their highest level late in the season? I mean, that's where I think this team truly is a contender for the national championship because they've played maybe their best basketball two or three times this season, and yet we keep looking at them and saying they're a top ten team. They're a team that's going to have the ability to – to go in and beat anybody uh, since there's so much room to grow. Just one thought here, one last question, I guess. Um, getting to that ceiling, it would seem like they would like to have Enfale Dante be a part of that equation. He didn't right. play in either game this weekend. I would think that would be a bit of a red flag. I know we spoke last about the knee issue he had up at Seattle. You, you kind of made it sound like you weren't sure how serious it was. Has there been more clarity, and is this something that could – potentially drag on for a while with him? It's a good question. Um, knee injury, he, he had a twisted knee at Washington, hasn't suited up or even warmed up the last two games. It seems like he's he's been out there when the team's warming up, kind of bouncing around and, and just kind of watching the rest of the squad warm up for the game. He's not taking part in official activities, but he does move better than I would think for a guy that can't play. So I would... I would suspect that he comes back probably in the next couple weeks. Um, they don't need him against Stanford. They don't need him against their, uh, against California. And then after that, uh, you, you've got games where you're going to need him. You, you, you play at Oregon State next Saturday, uh, and then Colorado and Utah, and then you play at the Arizona schools, and you close out with uh, the Beavers and then the NorCal schools. So if you can get him mid-March, you know, for that Colorado Utah series or maybe the Civil War, that's when I, you know, I would, I would play it, I would play it safe, give him an extra week or two just to ensure that a guy that's a difference maker for your team offensively, now he's not there defensively, but offensively, uh, he can, he can bring something that no one else has the ability to do, uh, for the stretch run would be pretty critical. All right, I think that's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening. I want to remind you, today's the last day, the 27th, to get your 60% off membership to an annual subscription to DuckTerritory.com. Gets you all the way, uh, final stretch run of 2020 recruiting, spring football, the March Madness run for both the men and the women. It gets you the entire football season of the 2020 season for football, and it gets you most of the recruiting run for the 2021 cycle, which is currently ranked sixth in the country. So, Eric Scopel, myself, Matt Prame, you've been listening to the Austin Audible's podcast. Adios, amigos. 
You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel, streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app.